Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 with me. Uh, We're going to continue our sermon series through this book of Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 are one literary unit together, so we're going to look at those together this morning. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to grab one at the welcome table or the uh, bookshelf over here, and then keep that if you need one. Um, The Word of God is what we live by, okay? It's everything. It's the authority in our lives. We come to hear the Word and not the preacher, but we need preachers who preach the Word. And when you go home, the book doesn't close, right? You don't just wait until next Sunday to hear from the Lord again. God speaks always through His Word, and you have it. And if you don't, I want you to, so that you can listen to the Lord, His words, His wisdom, His power, His might, His goodness his gospel all throughout the week. And just don't do that by yourself either. Do it together with others. So I want to encourage you, if you need a Bible, grab one. If you're using one of those Bibles, you can turn to page 1091. That's where uh, Revelation chapter 4 starts. Last week, we finished up the letters to the seven churches, and each letter ended, if you remember, with a promise to the one who conquers. What does it mean to conquer in the book of Revelation? It's, it's the one who endures with faith filled obedience to Jesus through the hardships and the sufferings of this life to the very end. The last letter finishes with this promise in Revelation 3, 21. And I don't think this is a coincidence based on what we're going to see in Revelation 4 and 5. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This morning, as we look at chapters four and five, we're going to get a glimpse of the throne room that Jesus is talking about when he makes this promise. This scene that's about to unfold for us is not only what the entire book of Revelation revolves around, this is the central passage of the whole book right here, but this is what all of reality revolves around. Real life, our lives revolve around this scene right here that we're going to look at. There's not a single person in this room that does not need to be captivated by the one who sits on the throne in that room. So I want to pray and thank the Lord for this, and then we'll dig in together. Father, your word is eternal. It stands firm. We pray that today we would see your faithfulness to rule and reign on our behalf through your son, that we would respond with joyful obedience, that you would stir our hearts to greater endurance as worship to this king who's worthy of it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So The Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie of all time, okay, for a couple reasons. One is sentimental. I used to watch this movie with my grandparents. They have all uh, the soundtrack on a vinyl record. I actually have that now. I used to lay down in their living room and listen to the music over and over and over again with them. When we were kids, you know, there was no, like, screen at your face right here. You could just sit and listen and, and just get lost in the story, yeah? And, and so, but I also love how much of this storyline and the themes in this movie uh, relate to the storyline and, and themes of Scripture, okay? Just follow me for a minute. There's a classic battle of good versus evil. Are you a good witch or a bad witch, Right? The attempt to run away from life's problems, the longing for home, the road that leads to hope, the need for others to walk on it with you, the hardships and the perils of the journey, the promise of someone who can help, and then the joy of finally reaching the destination, right? 
But that's where the similarities stop. Because when Dorothy and the gang reach the destination, the Emerald City, they expect to see this great and powerful Wizard of Oz, but what they get is a small and cowardly man from Kansas who's trying to hide his true identity. Now, I'm not trying to spoil the end of, uh, of the movie for you, but that thing came out 84 years ago, so if you haven't seen it yet, that's on you, all right? But if you have seen it, you know this famous scene where Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Lion and the Tin Man, they're all trembling before this fiery smoke, this thunderous lightning, this giant floating wizard head. That, that when, when Dorothy's dog Toto just kind of trots over and starts tugging at this shiny green curtain and, and uncovers a white-haired man who's frantically turning cranks and pulling levers and yelling into a microphone, and that's when he yells out the famous line, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? They'd come all that way through many dangers, toils, and snares, if you will, enduring trials and hardships, all in the hopes that there was this one who was greater than all who could help them. But when they saw him for who he really was, their hopes were crushed. They were dashed. And they were left wondering why they had come all that way just to find somebody who needed as much help as they did. And they wondered if all that they endured to get there was actually worth it just to see him. You tracking with me? You see, as Christ followers, we wonder the same thing at times, don't we? We wonder if all that we have to endure in this life is worth it. Is Jesus really worth all the trouble that we have to go through? Are we going to get to his kingdom and then be really disappointed? We wonder this because we go through things that shake us to our core. And we wonder if Jesus is paying attention or if he actually has the power to do something about those situations. Because we pray and we pray and the situations don't change. They don't seem to go away or, or get any easier. Instead, they actually feel like they get harder, Right? And then we don't just deal with one at a time. They, they sort of compile on top of us. Here's the thing about our Lord. Jesus knows that we grow tired and weary. He knows that we weary easily. That's why he gave us Revelation 4 and 5. It's as if these chapters are shouting loudly at us. Listen, listen. Pay attention to the man behind the curtain, or in this case, behind the door. And if we pay attention, here's what we're going to see. This is our main point from our text this morning. Jesus is worthy of our endurance because Jesus is worthy of all worship. Jesus is worthy of our endurance because Jesus is worthy of all worship. And we're going to see that this morning as our eyes and our ears behold what John's eyes and ears behold, a throne, a scroll, and a song, and a lamb who's worthy of them all. You ready for this? Let's dig in together. Revelation 4, 1 through 3. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had had an appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Now after his first vision in chapter one of the risen and exalted Christ, John gets a second vision here. That's what the after this means. In the first vision, Jesus came down to John and spoke to him like a, a voice like a trumpet. This time, John is brought up to Christ in this vision. And the first thing he sees is a throne in heaven and someone seated on it. Now, the word throne is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. And 18, almost 40% of those times are right here in these two chapters. It's an important word, and we're going to see why here in a moment. John describes the one seated on this throne as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone and a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald fully encircled the throne. And the rainbow, that, or, uh, excuse me, the stones reflect the intensity of the glorious one seated there on the throne. And the rainbow that surrounds him radiates his glory as a symbol of his covenant faithfulness to show mercy in the midst of judgment. Think about a rainbow for a minute. Where else did you see that? Back in Genesis 6 through 9, right? What did God do? What did he show? Mercy through judgment. Noah and the ark, right? Listen, the Emerald City doesn't hold a, camera, a, a, a candle to the Emerald that's surrounding this throne to the glory that's displayed here. Why? Because this throne doesn't belong to a wizard. This throne belongs to God himself. John's writing this description down for the churches that are facing severe persecution and death from one who sits on a different throne. Back in the first century, the throne of Rome. Emperor Domitian believed that he was the center of the universe and he demanded that he be worshiped uh, as God. But the vision that John receives here reveals otherwise. Let's keep going. Verse four <clears throat> through the first part of verse eight. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around and inside. This is, this, is, this is beyond comprehension, this scene here. There's so much glory here. The scene here leaves no room for doubt that God's throne is at the center of everything. Did you catch the wording there? Everything here is described as either being around the throne, in front of the throne, or coming from the throne. God's throne is the central point of all of it. His throne is surrounded by 24 thrones. The 24 elders could be human representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles signifying all of God's redeemed people from the old covenant and the new covenant. 
or, or the 24 elders could be angelic beings who have a priestly role in the temple of God. The second option actually seems a little bit more likely based on how these elders are portrayed through the rest of Revelation. In fact, in, in chapter 5, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get there in a minute, but chapter 5, they speak of humanity as redeemed. They don't even include themselves in that. Either way, they're representatives of the totality of God's covenant people of faith. Their white clothes are a symbol of purity and their crowns are a symbol of power. It's a picture of a priesthood kingdom. The lightning and thunder coming from the throne are expressive of God's righteous judgment. We're going to see lightning. We're going to hear thunder multiple times throughout this book. And all of it always points to judgment. What this means you have a rainbow, you have lightning and thunder. This means that God's throne is a throne of mercy and justice, right? The seven fiery torches help us see that this throne is not a heavenly castle. It's not in a heavenly castle, it's in a heavenly temple. The, the torches are the lights of the lampstand. We've heard the lampstands already, language used in, in, the, uh, in Revelation, right? It's a symbol for the church, but what is the church? It's the new temple of God. And these torches are the lights of that lampstand, and they're equated to the Holy Spirit here, all of which serves as a reminder that, to John that he's in the very presence of God. The sea of glass probably has several layers of meaning. We don't have time to go deeply into all these, but here's a few things. Elsewhere in Revelation, uh, this sea of glass is, is equated to the Red Sea, and throughout this book, the sea is a picture of evil and turmoil and chaos, like stormy seas, right? It could be described like glass here to emphasize God's sovereign ability then to subdue all evil and bring eternal peace. That would be absolutely true. What do we say when we see a perfectly calm lake? It's like glass, right? The crystal-like appearance here could also be another reflection along with the other stones of the glory of God, the way a perfectly calm lake mirrors the mountains that tower over it. You ever look at that lake and it's like, what's what? The only way I can tell that this is the mirror image is that it's upside down. It's so perfectly still and clear, right? The sea of glass here could also be alluding to the giant water basins in front of the temple that Solomon built. Those wash basins were called the bronze sea. And the priests would wash themselves there as an act of ceremonial cleansing before they ministered to the temple. So in that layer of meaning, the sea of glass here would serve as a reminder because it's surrounding the throne that all who approach God must be pure and holy. Four living creatures are almost identical to the ones that Ezekiel described in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 when he saw the glory of the Lord seated on the throne in the heavenly temple. In fact, almost all of the language that we've read so far in this chapter has been used in the Old Testament by Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah when they saw this same throne room. You know what that means? It's been around for a while, for all eternity, actually. Same throne room that John is seeing here. The faces of the four living creatures represent all of created life, 
but their wings and their eyes reveal that they're heavenly beings like seraphim, like cherubim, and they serve as God's heavenly agents. Later in Revelation, we're going to see that these living creatures will be involved in administering the judgment of God on the world. But it's what they're doing right here and right now that reveals why Jesus is showing John and us this throne room in the first place. Let's look. Second part of 8 through 11, chapter 4. Day and night, they never stop, saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, that's day and night, never stopping. The one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the the one seated on the throne, and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, our Lord and God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The creation is worshiping the creator nonstop right here. You know what this is? Do you know what we're seeing here? This is a never-ending worship service in heaven led by these four creatures and God is the subject of the worship, the object of the worship. Because he's eternally worthy to be praised for who he is and what he's done. Who is he? They told us. He's holy, holy, holy. When things are repeated three times like that in the Bible, it's to emphasize the importance of what's being said. You see, God is utterly set apart from everyone and everything else. That's what it means to be holy. Purity and righteousness don't just describe God. You know what? They get their definitions from him. He's the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. That's who he is. What did he do? They told us that too. He created all things, and by his will, they exist and were created. That means everything, including you, including me, exists by God's power for God's purposes. Notice who's giving thanks to whom here. God's not doling out gratitude to his creation. Hey, thanks for doing that. Thanks for all this. Creation is pouring out praise to their creator. See, God owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. God alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Listen, everything that we as human beings are prone to want for ourselves. We strive for these things in our relationships, in our jobs, in our schools, in our communities, online, and in every context that human beings exist, we compete for glory and honor and power. We want for ourselves what only God is worthy of receiving. Here's a simple test to prove that. How would those who know you best finish this phrase from verse eight for you? Day and night, he never stops saying blank. Day and night, she never stops saying blank. 
This is so convicting to me. Do you never stop talking about the holiness and the worthiness of the eternal God? Or are you like me, prone to talk about other things in his place? Day and night, we never stop reciting sports statistics about our favorite teams. Day and night, we never stop advocating for our favorite hobbies. We never stop singing our favorite songs or quoting our favorite movies or gushing over our favorite people. We never stop complaining about our problems or stressing about our situations. We never stop blaming other people, gossiping about those that we don't like, criticizing our leaders. We never stop boasting about ourselves. All these things serve to remind us, listen to me, because I'm the first one that needs to hear this. We never stop needing to confess our need for grace and run to the one who gives it freely. We need to let these four living creatures and these 24 elders lead us in giving glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne and falling down before him in worship. This heavenly worship service, this is the model for our earthly worship service, for what we're doing right here and now on a Sunday morning when we gather together. We gather here to behold our God seated on the throne and to give him glory that he's due, we gather to remind each other that he rules over all things by his sovereign power and for his sovereign purposes. We gather to proclaim the holiness of our Lord and God and declare his worthiness to receive all glory and honor and power as we sing and preach and pray and practice his word together because that is what instructs us to do all these things. But our worship of him is not just restricted to Sunday mornings. You see, worship is an all-of-life thing. It's a day and night, never-stopping thing. Where we don't just proclaim God's worthiness with our mouths. We show it with our lives. You see, the world's way is to put you at the center of your life and make everything and everyone else revolve around you. But here's what heaven's way is. Heaven's way is to show God at the center of all things so that our lives revolve around him. That's why we need to see this throne. Because we need to recognize that somebody is sitting there already. And it's not you. And it's definitely not me. And we need to rightly worship the one who is sitting on this throne. Jesus sat down with his father on his throne because he conquered and he promised uh, that all who conquer with him will sit on the, his throne with him. Is that not grace? Isn't that the grace that we need? Undeserved favor and blessing. When we worship God rightly for who he is, we actually get to share in his rule over all creation. And we worship God rightly by enduring in faith-filled obedience to Jesus through the hardships and the sufferings of this life. By conquering, by conquering. Jesus is worthy to sit on the throne because he conquered. But he's worthy of so much more. So let's look at the scroll Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on, the, on both sides, sealed with seven seals. 
I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. And we just heard the 24 elders proclaim the worthiness of God to receive glory and honor and power because he created all things and by his will everything exists that, and was created. The scroll here in God's right hand represents God's will for all of creation. More specifically, the scroll represents God's plans for the judgment of salva- and salvation of mankind, plans that he established before the foundation of the world, plans that he revealed through his prophets, plans that he fulfilled through his son. Isaiah 46.10 says, I declare, this is God talking, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is, what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is what this scroll represents. One author notes that this scroll reveals how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. You know that prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray? Right here in the scroll, we have the answer to that prayer. Verse 1 tells us that the scroll has writing on both sides. It means it's an entire plan, and it's already been written. There's no room to add anything else. There's no, no room to, or you can't, you can't erase anything from it. It's, it's permanent ink, right? Some of what's written here is already taking place, but we, we need the scroll to be opened so that the rest of God's plan for history Uh, the history of the world will be brought to completion. But John tells us there's a really big problem right here. That scroll is in God's right hand and it's sealed seven times. Seven is the number of completion. It's, It's sealed. And no created being anywhere is able to open this scroll or even to look in it. John says everybody is unworthy. Everybody is unworthy. And he weeps at this reality, and we ought to as well as we consider this, but it, because it confronts us with the truth that even though we are created in God's image, we have corrupted that image with our sin. And so while God is always holy, 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 do you know how we have to describe ourselves? As unholy, unholy, unholy. While, while he's worthy, to receive glory and honor and power. We aren't worthy to receive the scroll or even get a glimpse inside it. You know what we're worthy of? Judgment and wrath, condemnation for our sin. John's also weeping because if nobody's found worthy to open the scroll, then, then God's glorious plan of redemption will not be brought to completion. Suffering will continue. Weeping won't stop. Sin and death will continue to wreak havoc in this world. There's no guarantee then of justice or victory for God's people. No peace, no hope, no reason to endure if this scroll stays closed. Now this scroll, where is it? 
It's in the right hand of God. What is the right hand in Scripture? It's the symbol of power and authority. God will accomplish all that's written in here. He will. He will do his will. We're going to see that next week. God is worthy. God is worthy to open this scroll himself, but he doesn't open it because he already knows what's in it. He wrote it, right? He declared all the things in there. Its contents are meant to be revealed not to God, but to humanity, which means a human being has to open it. And then we come back to our problem because there's no human being worthy to open it. Why? Because our sin makes us all unworthy. You see, a sinless human has to open this scroll. And as it turns out, there's one, there's one, one person and only one who fits that description because he's not only fully human, he's also fully God. Look at verse 5 through 7. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. John, don't weep. Look at the, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. In the book of Revelation, John often hears one thing, but then he sees something else. And we need to know that what he sees never contradicts what he hears. It only ever clarifies it. John hears that the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, David is worthy and able to open the scroll because he has conquered. The lion of Judah is a reference to Genesis 49. The root of David is a reference to Isaiah 11. Both of them point to the messianic, promised messianic king who would rule on the throne forever and execute God's perfect justice against all of God's enemies. One of the 24 elders tells John, hey, dry those tears. Stop weeping because this conquering king, this promised Messiah, he's here. And he's gonna open that thing. John hears about a conquering lion but then he turns and what does he see? A slaughtered lamb. Who's he looking at here? You know this. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, the lion who conquered by being slaughtered like a lamb. Jesus conquered his enemies by being conquered by his enemies. He defeated death by being put to death. He died at the hands of his enemies, listen, so he could rescue the hearts of his enemies. He was sacrificed on the cross. He was slaughtered like a lamb because of sin. But the lion of Judah rose from the dead to show that the sin that he died for was not his own. Why? Because he doesn't have any. That sin was ours. He lived a perfectly sinless life, and yet he willingly suffered and died under the righteous judgment of God the Father in order to remove that judgment from all who put their trust in him. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he's the only one who fulfills everything that's written in it. Notice that while everyone else is falling down before the throne of God, what does it say about Jesus? 
He's standing. He's standing by it. The slaughtered lamb is standing because he's not dead anymore. He's alive forever and ever. He's standing because he's not a created being. He's the creator and the redeemer of the new creation. He's standing because he's the messianic king who has conquered. And he has the right to sit on that throne with his father forever. You see, this slaughtered lamb is not standing there in weakness. He has seven horns, which are a symbol of his absolute and unmatched power. He has seven eyes, which are a symbol of his perfect wisdom and justice by which he executes God's judgment and salvation in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's, that judgment and salvation began with his death and resurrection, and now he's taking the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne in, in order to bring that judgment and salvation to completion. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because he conquered. And when he takes the scroll, praise erupts all over the place. Look at verses 8 through 10. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased a people for God by your blood from every tribe and nation and language and people, every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Remember Jesus' promise at the end of chapter three? To all who conquers, I'll give them the right to what? Sit on my throne with me because I've been given the right to sit on my throne with my father. They're singing this song about that. We need to see something, though, because the scene has shifted slightly here. You see, now the four living creatures and the 24 elders aren't just falling down before the throne of God and worshiping the one seated on it. They're falling down before the Lamb of God and worshiping him. How can they do that? unless he is God himself. He's not just the lamb of God. This lamb is God. The harps, the harps and the golden bowls filled with incense remind us that the worship is happening, or that this worship is happening in the heavenly temple. We'll see later in Revelation that the prayers of the saints are a call for God to judge his enemies and save his people. Jesus is being worshiped here because he inaugurated that judgment and salvation with his death and his resurrection. And the new song that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing is a song about the new creation brought about by Christ's redemptive work. You see, this is a gospel song. And in it, they give three reasons why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and bring God's plan of redemption to completion. He's worthy, first of all, because he was slaughtered. Jesus laid down his own life in order to secure eternal life for sinners. He's worthy, second reason, because he purchased people for God by his blood. His blood was the ransom payment to redeem those held in slavery to what? To sin. And he made that payment for people all over the world and all throughout history. Third reason, he's worthy because he made those people a kingdom and priests 
to God. He's given us the right to sit on the throne with him as we proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. All of these things are in the past tense. Did you notice that? Why? Because it's already started. Jesus has already begun to bring them to fruition through his death and resurrection. And because he's worthy to open the scroll, he will bring all of these things to completion. Listen, we're headed somewhere, but we're already on the road. And that reality that he's going to bring this to completion only intensifies the praise. Let's finish this out. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders. What else can they do? They fell down and they worshiped. Is this not a breathtaking picture? This is a picture of the already and the not yet thunderous worship from millions of angels alongside the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Do you know that that is taking place right now as these words come out of my mouth? It's incredible. And when we sang this morning, guess who we joined? in song. The throne room of heaven is resounding with an anthem of praise, not just to the one seated on the throne, but the one standing next to it, Jesus Christ, the Son, because he's worthy. Verse 13 is still yet to come. All who are unworthy to open the scroll, it's the same, same language he used when, some, when the elder or angel said, who's worthy? Everyone in heaven and under, uh, on the earth and under the earth. Everyone who's unworthy to open the scroll will worship the one who is worthy. Paul tells us this in Philippians. One day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see to the glory of, of Christ himself. Many will do it willingly and joyfully. Many will be forced to do it against their will because they've rejected Christ and they, yet they will no longer be able to deny the reality of who he is. Your knee will bend whether you want it to or not. Which one of these will describe you on that day? Do you know Jesus as the lamb who was slaughtered to redeem you and to free you from the guilt of your sin and from the power of death? Have you put your hope in him for eternal life and confessed your need for his forgiveness? Then if not, then today is the day for you to fall down in worship to this king. You see, we don't invite Jesus to join us on our throne. It's not how this works. He invites us to join him, but you can't, you can't join him on his throne unless you get off of the throne of your life completely. 
and you bow down to Jesus as king. You know what that means? That means that you don't get to call the shots anymore. You surrender your will to Jesus's good and perfect will. Look at what grace he's shown us through his death and resurrection. Listen, that grace is yours forever, forever, day and night, never stopping. If you put your trust in him. So put your trust in him. Surrender your life to him today. Let that be, listen, your first act of willing worship to the one who's worthy of it. In verse 12, the multitude in heaven declared with a loud voice that Jesus is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. How many things is that? Seven. You know what that means? That he's not only worthy of those seven things, he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of all praise, all worship. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. Because he's one with the Father and the Spirit, he is the God who is worthy of all worship. And since he's worthy of all worship, here's how it comes back to us. That means that he's worthy of our endurance. Because when we endure in faith-filled obedience to Jesus through the hardships and the sufferings of this life to the end, you know what we're doing? We're saying Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. You see, worship just isn't always set to music. Sometimes we have the opportunity to, to declare the worthiness of Jesus through the physical weakness of cancer and chronic pain. Or through the emotional exhaustion of grief and loss. Or through the mental stress of financial need. Or through the spiritual pressure of persecution. It's one of the greatest joys of my life to serve this church. I love you all. <laughs> Listen, Redeemer family. We may be small in number. We're not, we're not countless upon countless, thousands upon thousands. But when we endure suffering in this life for the glory of Jesus Christ, do you know what we're doing? We're singing. We're singing this heavenly song in our hearts in every beat says Jesus is worthy. Jesus is is worthy. Jesus is worthy. He's worth it. And when we endure to the end by his power and his grace, we will join this countless heavenly multitude and we will belt out this song with our glorified mouths. You see, Jesus is worthy of our endurance because he's worthy of all worship. And endurance is worship. Church, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. This journey doesn't end in disappointment. We're not going to get there and be disappointed. This journey ends in glory. Glory. It ends where it began with a throne. And to all who conquer 
the worthy one will make us worthy to sit on that throne with him. Why? Because he has conquered and he sits on that throne with his father. Don't we need this heavenly perspective? Don't we need this heavenly perspective on our earthly reality? Yes, we do. I'll answer it for you. Why? Because this heavenly vision is eternal reality. It is right now reality. It's forever reality. It is day and night, never stopping reality. Who's worthy? Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this vision of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ who is currently at your right hand on the throne reigning with you on behalf of his church. We pray, Lord, that between the already and the not yet, you would strengthen us for endurance through Christ and for Christ. That we might reach the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. And join in the anthem of unending praise to the king who is above all kings. For his glory, for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.